Welcome back to week 34 of the Resurrection Walking with Jesus While We Read podcast, reading through the Bible in a year. We start our Old Testament section today in, uh, in Esther, and luckily we have an expert on Esther in the room with us. No, not really. Well, Actually, yeah. you're a halfway expert, maybe three-fourths expert. I don't know what the qualifications would be, but I definitely think AJ is three-fourths of an expert on this book because he read a highly commendable book by a guy named John Anthony Dunn on Esther. So we would recommend that book to you. Um, I don't know why I'm blanking on the title, but you know what it is. Yeah. Esther and her, her for el- elusive, elusive God. E L U S I V E. Not elusive, like Not, he's alluding to things yeah. all the time, but elusive. He's dodgy. Hard to find in the book. Exactly. Uh, we do have a podcast episode that we did with John Anthony Dunn. And you can find that on our website, along with a sermon series that, Aaron, you preached through the book of Esther. That is correct. Do you remember how many weeks that was? I can't remember if it was 8 or 11. One of those. I think it was For sure not 9, though. No, I don't think so. Or 10. And I'm not sure if I'm remembering Ruth. The Ruth series, I think, was either 8 or 11. Oh, okay. I don't remember, but... The two books of the Bible named after women I've preached through in the last couple years. And Esther was eight, so that means Ruth, I think, was 11 sermons, which might strike you as odd because Ruth is shorter than Esther. Mm -hmm. Right. It was more action-packed. Well, I don't know. Well, which one, Ruth or Esther? Whichever one the right answer is. I would – I mean, they're both – they're both – Age turners. I think Esther is just super. There's a lot of drama, and the characters, you know, there's a lot of threat of death and annihilating the Jews. It seems like the stakes had never been higher for a lot of the characters. Yeah. It's just also somewhat repetitive at times. So the sermons would just all be making the same point. So I think that's why I did shorter. But even more strangely, as I'm thinking about it, Think back when I preached through Ruth, I was still preaching like 50 to 60 minute sermons. With Esther, I think I did one sermon that long, but the rest I think were 35 to 45 max. So not only were there fewer sermons, there were also, there were fewer minutes of sermons. Do you feel like maybe you just got more efficient over time or there was just that much more content? Um, I think that, I realized a couple things. Number one, I needed to get the sermons written earlier so I can could like go back and proof them and condense them because I just get really wordy sometimes. So I didn't really need to take up that amount of time. But then also I realized like we don't have children's church, so there are kids in there who I'm trying to also talk to. There are a lot of very kind, gracious women who serve in nursery during church. So they've got to be watching kids for however long I'm preaching. And that can get really taxing. And if I'm putting my effort in to be as clear and concise as possible, then I don't need to take up as much time. We also added two scripture readings instead of just one every Sunday. And we added the Lord's Supper to every service. So we've increased the length of the service um, and I needed to decrease my sermon length. Can we talk about some just quick bullet points of Esther? I don't have any. You're the guy running the pod, AJ. For someone who has maybe not, who's not familiar with the sermon series that you reached, that you preached recently, which is probably gonna be most of the people from our church listening to this, but someone's listening to this later, can you give a little snippet that maybe whets their appetite to go listen to those? Okay. Maybe some things that you think about differently than maybe a typical understanding of main point and then... Yeah, I I can say something. Okay. I'd say that most people have a VeggieTales edition of Esther in their head, and that telling of Esther is based not on the Hebrew story of Esther, 
but on the story of Esther in the Greek Old Testament, which has seven additions to it, that radically changes the kind of story, such that Esther and Mordecai are heroes. In the Hebrew story of Esther, which is in our Bible, which is what is in our Protestant Bibles. Um, in, In our Bibles, Esther and Mordecai are unfaithful Jews, and they remain so throughout the entire story. They fail to observe Passover. They violate all of the kosher laws, Esther especially. Um, So the story is about a nation that is not even in exile because the exile has been lifted. 50 years prior to that, Cyrus sent any Jew back to Jerusalem who wanted to go. They've rebuilt the temple. They've you know, or at least they're working on it, the walls of Jerusalem. So these people are here by their own volition, and they don't ever, um, you you would never know that God exists based on the way they told their stories in the way Esther is told. We only know that because Esther is placed in the canon, and we're intended to read it through the lens of the Torah and of Israel's history, And we're intended to see the failures of Esther and Mordecai in God's faithfulness, even when his people forget them. And I know that for a lot of people, when I was preaching that, they were hearing this for the first time. But so was I, because it wasn't until I had translated through the book and started to ask questions about why are there so many things missing? Not even just God's name, but um, like, for, for instance, why is it that on the the night before Passover, when the family should be choosing the goat or the lamb for Passover, that's when the declaration from Haman went out, and no one's talking about the Passover. You know, they're, they're going to fast during the Passover, pretty much. So all these sorts of questions really are important to ask when you read. Much like Job. Just kidding. Well, yeah, let's move to Job. I yeah, what did you good. guys think were interesting points or questions that you guys have from the book of Job. So my going into Job, I think I read it within the last couple of years, but I know when I read it before, I was pretty interested in the first couple of chapters. And then I was like, wow, they really talk back and forth a lot. And I'm pretty sure I skimmed through it and was like, okay, whatever. And then I kind of intently read the last couple chapters of Job. So this time, uh, I did feel a lot more motivated to go a lot more slowly through each section of Job saying something and then his friend responding and like stopping and considering individual verses and stuff like that a lot more, which I really liked. And now I'm looking forward to doing that as we move through the book. there's a lot it's what like 42 chapters there's a lot of conversation throughout the whole book uh that we just get to a little bit of so far but that's kind of my like new approach for it is to go a lot more slowly and really kind of dig into some individual verses yeah our reading only gets through the beginning of chapter six so we're just getting into the book but a lot has happened you know the main scene is being set up by Satan going to God in this heavenly council sort of situation, and God presents Job as an example of someone that that Satan may want to consider. What do you think of that part? Well, yeah, I guess to start off with, uh, for the book as a whole, do we do we know are we are we approaching this as historical, or do we not know? Is there a definitive? stance on this or not or is that highly debated i think it's debated like anything but i think job is historical i think his daughter's names give credence to that being in the right time period but the legend of job and his his sufferings maybe gave some literary license to the author of this book to present the theology in the book. So I think he's historical, but maybe not everything that's in the book of Job is maybe verbatim what happened to Job. So kind of like every time you tell the story about the fish you caught, it keeps getting bigger? Something like that? Maybe a little bit. Yeah, I find that 
pretty unsatisfying because I think if we're saying this is an exaggerated tale based on real events. I don't know if it's exaggerated. I'm just saying, you mean what he was saying? Embellished. It's possibly. I was just saying that maybe it's not exactly the same. Okay. And nothing is exactly the same because no one documenting any historical event can account for every aspect of it. So it's not... That's not possible. I I am not I, I haven't considered all of the arguments for or against historicity on Job. I've never preached it and I've never studied it at length, but I can guess what some of the arguments would be. You mentioned one about the names. I I find that utterly unconvincing as an argument either way, because someone could say in any story that's set in a particular time period whether it's true history or fiction, you could choose a name appropriate to time and location. We also don't really know when this timing is or where it was, right? Because you have Job, there are some internal clues. He makes a sacrifice because his children may have sinned, you know, this morning burnt offering. But that was also the language in Genesis of Cain and Abel. So it's not, this isn't even necessarily an Israelite family, you know? So I I look at that kind of stuff and say, the details in the text don't really tell us, you know, the country of us, I don't know that there's agreement on where this is. So I, I would probably guess that I could talk to someone who was very convinced that this is history and they could convince me And then I could talk to someone who's very convinced that it's not, and they could probably convince me too. Mm -hmm. You know, there there are probably some good arguments for historicity that are the exact same arguments for non-historicity. So the fact that the New Testament authors reference Job as a person, we all reference fictional characters as real persons as well. You know, I often talk about the fact that, you know, Harry Potter did this or that. But we're all aware that Harry Potter didn't do that. Um, when I'm watching, you know, a TV show and I come to church and I'm talking to, to my bros about the TV show I'm watching, I might talk about Lord Grantham and a, a non-educated hearer of the conversation might not know that Lord Grantham is just a character in Downton Abbey. They may assume that it's a real person based on the way that I'm talking about him. So that's that could be an evidence for historical or non-historical nature. So I think you guys see what I mean. It's it's really tough. I think the thing that might tip me to being really open to non-historical is the the literary layout in the way that Job is described. Um, and, and even this scene in heaven, you know, I, I think this council of the gods where the adversary, where Satan is coming before the presence of the Lord in heaven, I think talking about this as a historical account raises a lot of questions for us historically and theologically. You know, what does does Satan right now, or prior to Christ's defeat of Satan on the cross, did he have free access in the divine council? Who are these sons of gods and the divine beings? Is this a literary device that's part of the ancient Near Eastern worldview, or is this true? Is there a council of the gods where these pretender gods are before the true God on his throne? I, you, you see what I mean? I, I just don't know what to do with all of that. So I want to, this is the way I want to read it. I want to read it as a narrative that's a vehicle for truth, regardless of whether it's fiction, historical fiction, or as close to bare history as we can get. It's a theological account of suffering in the divine ways of our God. When it says sons of God in 1.6 and 2.1, is that the same words as used for the, when the Nephilim in Genesis? Well, again, I don't know that we should necessarily connect the Nephilim and the sons of God, the Bane Elohim, I think is what it is. It, it would be the same thing, but probably with different reference. So sometimes we use the same terms to refer to different groups of people. 
And I think that would be the case here. The NLT says the heavenly court. Yeah, heavenly court, divine counsel. You know, it's really tough because um, even, so the word for God in Hebrew, Elohim, is plural. And contextually, you know the singular God or God's plural. So this also, you know, I'd be interested to know which translations take this as the sons of gods. I, you know, it's a little bit tough to know. But Satan's included in it. You know, he came with them. And here Satan, of course, is the adversary would be a more direct rendering. Is it bad that I kind of like Satan's answer and I find it funny? And I kind of like to say that. From roaming through the earth and walking around on it? Yeah. Well, yeah, my translation translation says from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. I just, yeah. I just think that's funny, and I find it a funny answer to give people. Like, hey, how have you been? What have you been up to? Well, yeah. I've just been going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, I think it's funny to do. I could also imagine a more modern retelling of this story that's not royal court, where, where this exchange happens, and then the Lord says to you, Satan, have you seen my boy Job while you're out there? No one else is like him on earth. Perfect dude. Fears me, turns away from evil. That's my man right there. I mean, it's true. So the other thing I'd say as we get into the book of Job is that it is really tough to follow. And the way that we have to read these, if you, if you are not regularly reading Shakespeare, it's going to be hard to follow Job. Because in, in Shakespeare plays and ancient literary things... There are people who talk to each other with these or like move the story forward with soliloquies or these really long drawn out statements. So, I mean, you're all familiar probably with um, sh- the, the poem about mercy, you know, falls from heaven is a gentle dew. The one who gives is twice blessed or it's twice blessed, right? It blesses the one who gives and the one who receives. Well, all of this is part of a courtroom scene. I think, a, yeah, a courtroom scene. And it's like a conversation where this person is about to, to like try to change the verdict, you, you know? So like you have to track along with a, a lot of words to get just a simple point. That's from a Shakespeare thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's very poetic. And on the one hand, we need to resist saying, just boil it down for me so I can get like what their point is. But on the other hand, we also kind of have to do that, even though we're going to lose something by not apprehending their point through the poetry. So when when they're talking, for example, Job's friends come and they sit down with him for seven days and nights, and no one spoke a word to him for that whole week. And, and I think it's details like this that might tip us towards saying, this isn't quite a literal, you know, historical story. It's everything's exaggerated or something, you know, seven days a night, no one's speaking. Um, Possible. From, from he, the, he was in bad shape. It, it could be. Oh. Um, anyway, so Job, after they've sat there for seven days and nights, looks at them and he gives this long speech that goes from chapter three, verse three, all the way down to verse 26. So that's a long speech, and he's making just one point, which is, I hate that I'm alive, and I wish I had never been born. But So so you see how we can boil it down, but we also will miss it when we don't apprehend that point through dwelling in the poetry. It's like asking someone what a song is about. You can give them the word, but they've actually got to listen to the song. Like, you've They've got to listen to the song and get it into their bones to really know what it's about. You can't just give them a sentence saying, you Rosanna. Know, it's a Toto song. I don't know. I'm not familiar with it, but what what's it about? I assume it's about a female named Rosanna. Okay. Well, so so each each section is really just getting at a point. But I'd, I'd also use the analogy of watching Downton Abbey again. 
you're listening in on a conversation that's in a different culture that's going way slower than you think it should, and you can miss some subtle cues in it. So sometimes I've watched episodes in a British TV show, like, you know, Downton Abbey or The Crown or something, and I'm like, wait, what just happened here? Why are these two people mad at each other after this really long and boring conversation that they just had? That's kind of how reading Job is, because when he finishes, Eliphaz, Eliphaz, I don't know how we say that, he speaks, and he speaks for a long time. From chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 5, verse 27. And if you weren't paying attention closely, you would think this guy is so encouraging. He's, he's been a good friend. He's telling this guy, verse 8 of chapter 5, if I were you, I would appeal to God and would present my case to him. He does great and unsearchable things. And if you keep reading into chapter 6, Job responds by being like, you're not my friend. It says in chapter 6, verse 14, a despairing man, me, I should receive loyalty from my friends even if I abandon the fear of the Almighty. So what we come to find is his friend, Eliphaz, has just accused him of being unfaithful to God, and that's why all the calamity has hit him. And Job listens to this, and then he takes a long way to say, like, hey, even if that were true, you should be nicer to me and not call me out on this. But more than that, you're wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. Um, He's like, my righteousness is still the issue. I have not done anything unrighteous before the Lord. You don't understand what's happening here. So that goes a few verses beyond a reading. I don't know why they had us cut off at Job 6.10. Because we're just, we're going week by week and they just go day by day. I I get that, but it would be like hanging up the phone on Job halfway through the conversation on one day and then like letting him finish the next day. I guess, yeah. Anyway, you see what I'm saying is there, I think this is why Job is one of the most misapplied and out of context quoted books of the Bible because you've got to take all these small parts that are really poetic and beautiful and hear them in context. And you have to recognize you're reading poetry the whole time. So this dialogue is not just straight dialogue. It's poetry. Well, I'll say I've gone on the record of before on this podcast of not understanding a single word of Shakespeare back in the day. I understood this a heck of a lot better than that. So, I mean, not fully by any means, but there was at least some stuff where I'm reading through. I'm like, oh, okay. I was kind of tracking like you said, it is a little bit weird to pick up on, like, oh, this sounds pretty positive. And then it's like, oh, wait, he was kind of accusing him of something. Like, where exactly did that happen? And then you kind of backtrack. Because I was reading through some of the footnotes to kind of help me a little bit. I tried, mm-hmm. sometimes I really avoid reading the footnotes because I don't want to be swayed one way or the other. But then sometimes yep. I'm like, well, I don't understand what happened, so I yep. need to look at the footnotes. Yeah, and I that's why I use the analogy of watching a, like British TV show or something because like you want to pay attention and figure out what's happening. But often you do get to the point where you're like, wait, what, what just happened? And you've got to ask somebody who's seen the show before or who just was paying better attention because it's easy to miss that small turning point because it's so subtle. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's true. That's why I'm thinking to myself, uh, the only times I really understand movies is if I'm watching it with somebody that's already seen it, and after every scene, they explain to me what just happened. And then I'm like, oh, okay. I don't think I pay attention very well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like the first time you're watching The Godfather, and there's I've a scene where he's like, oh, my word. Okay. No, wait. Where, where he's like, okay, I'll generalize it. So where, where the the gangster leader guy is talking to a group of people, but because every culture adopts like coded language, he can say something that means something way more to everyone in the room than it does to someone who's never thought about mob life. And those words can terrify somebody, even though it doesn't sound 
awful, but it's part of their language system, and we just miss it often because we're not part of it. Who was the youngest person in the Bible to curse? Um, uh, Job, because he cursed the day he was born. Aaron knew. I think you've said that joke before. I think so. I've never heard it. I'm a dad. I can do that stuff, right? (laughs) I mean, that's a dad. Wow, way to exclude Matthew and and I. It's okay. We have a... Matthew and me. You have a dog and I have two cats. It's like the same as having kids. Dude, it's exactly the same. I mean... Moving on. Oh. (laughs) So, (laughs) anyways, as far as... All right, so we got a lot of the technical background or approach to the book, which is good. So as far as the story itself starting out, um, I don't know. I have thoughts because like going in, maybe a, a lot like Esther, people have like the Veggie Tales uh, story in their mind of like, oh, this is the, like the gist of what Esther is. Like I would say for me, the gist of what Job is to me, it's like, oh, uh, you know, God allows Satan to do terrible things to him but not die, and he suffers for a long time, but he doesn't sin, and then everything's restored to him in the end because he's a righteous guy and everything's perfect then. So, but like, I feel like that's probably somewhat uh, either, what's the word I'm looking for? Pretty incomplete. There's a lot of like other things, or maybe obviously part of that's just completely inaccurate. So I want to be careful as I'm reading through it to not assume, you know, the very condensed generic story of Job that I know in my head. Because one thing I like, I don't know what to think of. I, I want to kind of second guess myself or like second guess my understanding of the story because it does say in a couple parts like, oh, uh, in all this, Job did not sin or char- charge God with wrong. But at the same time, it's like he's pretty negative right off the bat. It's like, okay, great. He was a righteous guy. He didn't sin or blame God for anything. And then in the next chapter, he's like, I wish I was never born. I wish I was just dead. Like, let me die now. It's like, that's not being that positive of a person. Like, I know he's in a lot of anguish, but I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. I feel like that's it's un, it's an understandable human response in his situation, but at the same time, it's not commendable. Well, and I think you know that's a question I have: Is the narrator trying to say, up until this point, Job was not sinning with anything he said, and he's also not speaking? And does that change in chapter three or not? Yeah, maybe it does. You know, like kind of goes off the rails a little yeah, bit. So I, I like you want to withhold judgment on some of these things as we go, but I I don't want to assume that anything that Job says is good. Yeah. You know, I or at least not that everything he says is right. You know, I think we can kind of get that disposition of, oh, anytime a biblical character speaks and I like that biblical character. They're, they're saying something that's right and true that I should affirm. And already in chapter 6, when Job responds to his friend, we know there are some things there that are maybe not quite right. In, in chapter 3, I think on the one hand, you could say, here is someone authentically expressing what they're, what they're going through. Um, but it's unlike almost all of the Psalms of lament that has a turning point in resting in God through the sorrow. So I, I just don't know how we should evaluate his words, and I have not studied it enough to know. So I just want to keep reading. I read some stuff where the author that I was reading was making comparisons with Job to Jesus. And so... Oh, yeah. I think that that on the surface made a lot of sense. But if we're going to say that Job started sinning or was not as righteous as maybe, you know, if the point was God is still merciful, even though everybody is a sinner. Yeah. I'd, I'd want to be careful because I, for some reason, thought that we were reading till 10 verse six instead of six verse 10. So I kept on reading and Job is lamenting. Even if I stood before God 
and told him I was innocent, I'd end up just condemning myself. So I think like we can do with David and Joseph or any number of characters, there are elements where we see Christ is the truer and better one there, but he's truer and better for a reason. Mm -hmm. So just because Job fails in some of these things, if he does, doesn't mean that there aren't contact points with Christ's victories in righteousness. So it's not a one or the other. Okay. Practical thing I want to point out, you already referenced it. Um, 2.13, when they sat with him for seven days and nights and no one spoke a word because they saw his suffering was very great. I think I think that's a nice verse because I think I've experienced that before and maybe other people have too. It was a good reminder to me of like, if somebody's having a hard time, like you might not know what to do or what to say, but just like physically going to them and being there for them and just like sitting by them and just having your presence be there can be like a really nice, encouraging, uplifting thing. Cause a lot of times it's like, you don't know what to say. Like, what do you say to this guy? All of his property was destroyed or stolen and then all his kids die. And now he's covered in horrible, painful sort. Like, what do you say to him? Hey, yeah. how's it going, Job? And uh, what's going on? So it's like, you, yeah. there's nothing to say in that moment, but still being there physically for him, just in whatever capacity, I think that means a lot to people. And I just felt like that was accurate and applicable. Yeah. And his friend admits as much in chapter four, verse two, when he says, should anyone try to speak with you when you are exhausted? It's just recognizing, should anyone even try to say anything to you? But then he goes on and says, um, but who can not say something to you? And I think we sense this guy's good motivations. He's saying, Job, you have spoken words that have strengthened some really hurt people. And I want to speak words that will do the same for you. But we know that Job's suffering isn't because of something that he did wrong. And Eliaphaz... Eliphaz, I don't know how we want to say that. He doesn't know that, and he says something that's not true, even though it makes sense. And I think that might be a good practical point for us, is to remember that even when we are reasoning biblically and reasoning based on God's character, there's always the reality that we don't know everything. So every bit of counsel that we give ought to come with a measure of provisionality, of realizing we don't know the full story. So we can offer something, but it, it might not be what's needed in that moment. What do you think about verse or chapter 5, verses 6 and 7? I was thinking about that, and I thought, I think that's right. I think that's true. Yeah, so I, I want to say two things about that. So, well, verses 6 and 7, Eliaphaz is just recognizing distress does not grow out of the soil, trouble does not sprout from the ground, but humans are born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. So he's essentially very proverbially and poetically saying, look, this didn't come from nowhere. Like, a human agent is responsible for the suffering in the world. So, so... And, and it's inevitable because where, where there's, and it's inevitable. Where there's yeah. a fire, you're going to have sparks. It's, it's and part of who we are, yeah. our nature. Yeah. yeah. Suffering like this in some form or fashion is unavoidable. So I guess I want to say three things, actually. Okay. The first thing is that without doing historical background studies, we're not aware of the kinds of questions that this story might be addressing. This This story might be helping us understand... A, a right view of the problem of evil or something like that. You know, it might help us understand a right view of human nature. We, we don't know what all the issues are that it's addressing. Number two, a lot of what this guy says sounds like it could come from the book of Proverbs, which means that in some instances, these things may be true, but not in every instance. So when we're going to use proverbial truth in our counseling or conversation with other people, we need to make sure we're grabbing onto the right proverbial truth, make sure it fits the right situation. 
mean, the Proverbs help us out because they'll sometimes place conflicting things right next to each other. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Do answer a fool according to his folly. So we know these are proverbial statements, and we need to find the right situation to plug them into, which leads me to my third point, which is this guy, at least on record here, never asked Job any questions. It's like he diagnosed the problem, assumed, Job, you must have done something wrong to deserve all this, because we just know that generally someone's sin is connected with devastation. So let me throw down on you all of this truth without actually rightly diagnosing things. And and I think we all have to be cautious of that. That reminded me of something I wanted to ask about because um, there was the one story with Jesus where there's a guy, I forget if he's blind or paralyzed, and the disciples ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents? And he's like, nobody He's like this to glorify God or something like that. So Yeah, I, I think that guy's life is the story of Job. Yeah, okay. Because that's what I was kind of thinking. I'm like, this seems almost like a parallel where it's like, you know, says Job didn't do anything wrong. It's just all this comes on him. But it's like the same situation where it's like these terrible things came about to glorify God in the end. Yeah, and I think that's actually really helpful and freeing for all of us who experience hardship because we can sometimes try to connect that to, oh, God just might not like me, or maybe God's punishing me for something, and we forget that Jesus bore the punishment for all of our sins on the cross. So we don't need to interpret our world as if God is against us or as if he's punishing us. You know, that may be the case at times in human history, but that shouldn't be our default conclusion. What shouldn't be our default conclusion? That the hardship I'm experiencing is God punishing me for failing to do something right. Hmm. That's what Eliaphaz is saying to Job. You either fail to do something right or you sinned against God, and now you're reaping the consequences. Yeah, I guess that's where it would be just important in my mind to, I don't know, have hopefully discernment or like talk with other people because sometimes obviously not in this situation but sometimes if you're suffering it's like we actually kind of brought that on yourself but if people are kind of self-blind to that and just assuming oh I'm probably like Job and I'm just being righteously afflicted but it's like no actually you're kind of dumb and off and like doing dumb stuff and kind of bringing affliction upon yourself yeah and I think a good a good thing to help us make that uh, determination, distinction, is by how closely connected the devastation is to an action point. So if someone just got a ticket and they now owe the government money and they're mad about it and saying, oh, you know, everyone's out to get me, we say, no, you were speeding. Like there's a very close connection there. If someone has a miscarriage, you can't really make a close connection unless there was a a problem. You know, if someone was drinking a lot of alcohol or was decided, hey, I'm going to climb Mount Everest even though I'm pregnant and fell, like maybe there's a connection there now of you were not living wisely and now there's a problem. But in most cases, you can't make that correlation. So we should free people from this wrong idea of God's punishing me through this hardship. True. Maybe I've just known too many people that have done the smoking or drinking or climbing Mount Everest when they're pregnant, and then it's like, well, it's not my fault. I have no idea. And they're just that. That's yeah. But but you I get what I'm again. saying is if For we sure, can draw yeah. a connection between the suffering and the agency of the person involved that brought it on themselves, then there's probably like, hey, let's show you a wiser way to live. Um, I guess, I guess I'm probably just thinking of the foolish people where it's like you could kind of see you made some poor actions that probably to some extent, whether significant or at least a little bit, contributed to this negative outcome, and they just don't want any part of looking at that. Yeah, so I'll give a final example. If you're talking to someone who has been through a divorce, you want okay. to, you can connect for them. Hey, these are patterns in your life that led to that. Like, you need to take ownership and responsibility for this, and you need to grow and change. Yeah. Like, 
um, God's not mad at you, but you're reaping the consequences of living in the way that you were. Right. Now, if that person 10 years later is saying, man, I would like to be married and I haven't met anyone who I would want to be married to, is God punishing me? Is God mad at me? Is God like rubbing it in? That's where I want to tell the person, no. Like in the first instance, there's like cause and effect. Right. In this one, you need to trust that God loves you and is not punishing you. Um, You need to keep growing through whatever things you needed to from that previous experience. But God is not holding something against you. He offers you forgiveness in the Lord and in fullness of life. And there may be a thousand other reasons that God hasn't led that person to find a spouse that primarily have to do with his glory and their good and nothing to do with punishing them for past failure. I agree with that. I mean, I don't feel punished. Good. I think some people do. Probably. Um, or or they overly fixate on, I'm, I'm the problem here, and if I could just find the secret sauce, everything would all be better. Instead of recognizing some, sometimes God just lets us go through hard trials, and it's not about punishment or guilt or, or something like that. Well, I probably err on the side of being critical on myself now because it's like, I don't know, I've thought about it. <clears throat> the way I think about it, like maybe like a, like an engine. <clears throat> it's like, well, this thing, it's not running right. Something's wrong. And it's like, maybe you have to tear the whole engine apart to find like the one little piece that's broken. And then you put the engine back yep. together. And now it's running fine. You know what I mean? That's what I feel like I've been trying to do with myself. Yep. And maybe it's one, two or five pieces that are broken. But it's like, it's not the whole thing that's not making the engine hum along. Mm-hmm fully but it's like sometimes you got to just try to take it all apart before you can find the problems yeah. well and that's so. talking about growth and development and spiritual formation which i think is a good conversation to have that's very different from the person who's wallowing in this idea that god's out to get them and that's why uh, they're not finding what they're looking for anyway that's a it, point of application right. response AJ, is there anything you wanted to add to our discussion on the book of Job before we transition to our New Testament reading in Romans? And as we transition there, I think we'll save our First Corinthians discussion till next week since it's such a short part of, of the book. Yeah, that's a good idea. I don't have anything else for this week. Um, there were some New Testament connections back to Job in our reading today and then what will be next week too that I think we could spend time talking about next week. In the New Testament reading, we are going to be finishing the book of Romans. Small, lesser known epistle of Paul. Yeah, it doesn't get as much credit as it deserves, does it? No, not at all. So after Paul is talking about the law and Jews and Gentiles, he starts to get a little bit more practical about how to to live that out, how to live out the gospel in, in unity. And Aaron, you mentioned last week that a lot of what we'd be reading this week had relevance to a Bible class that you're teaching right now. Yeah, I think so. So Romans 14 and 15 in particular, in just a couple weeks, I'm going to teach on the conscience. So obviously that will be related to it. But I think um, I'd want to draw everyone's attention to this transition in chapter 12 that we hit, where sometimes we, I think, can miss what Paul is doing here, and it's actually really, really important. And that is, he's just gone for 11 chapters over and over again, reiterating that keeping the law won't earn you righteousness. You won't be justified in God's sight by doing works of the law. And now in chapter 12, verse 1, he intensifies the law so that no longer are you making the sacrifice of circumcision or an animal on the altar, but you're sacrificing yourself to God and for others. Now, obviously not literally, but the connection I want to make is back to the the biggest proof of faith, which is Abraham 
who is willing to offer his one and only son, Isaac. That's the big picture of Abraham's faith, right? And um, here we're called to be Isaac ourselves, to give up ourselves for the the good of God and others, um, for for the spread of the gospel and for the maintenance of the community of faith. That was kind of the theme that I was pulling out of this last section was basically it boils down to just loving other people. And like you said, you know, the conscience is playing a huge part in how that actually gets worked out. Exactly. When I was reading Job and I flipped right over to Romans 12 to start the New Testament reading, in 12.12, it said, be patient in suffering. And I was like, oh, as soon as I get that buzzword suffering, I automatically thought of Job. Yeah, or even if you were if you were reading in the Christian Standard Bible where it said to be patient in affliction, that would probably trigger it as well. Definitely. What about patient in tribulation? No, that's terrible. Doesn't do it? No. All right. I'd never set foot in a church that uses that translation, except in about 45 minutes. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. I, I like the irony of what you're doing there because we were just talking about conscience and unity and you made this little quip about being disunified with other Christians over the Bible translation. I love it. It's so meta. I'm KJV only. Amen. But you didn't know that. You know, I didn't. I bet thouest didn't knowest that. Mostly because you have a massive ESV sitting in front of you. Oh. AJ. In Romans 13, Paul calls on people to submit to the governing authorities in a letter to Christians in Rome with the most godless government authorities probably on the planet. How should we think about that as we think about submitting to governing authorities in our own day, particularly in the aftermath of situations where many people have thought that the government isn't doing a good job? Yeah, it's a tough issue. I think just as Paul says here that, you know, we have to trust that God has put rulers in authority for his purposes, and we're called to contribute to the government in an appropriate way. And I think, you know, as an example, that means paying our taxes even when we're not 100% on board with how all of that money gets used. Yeah, I thought it's interesting that he says you need to submit because the wrath of God uh, comes on those who refuse to submit to the government through the governmental agencies, pretty much. So in verse 4, for the, the governing authorities are God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong, which bookends with the way that Paul started Romans, where he talks about the wrath of God being revealed against all unrighteousness. Uh, But then he goes on to say, you need to submit not only because of the wrath, but also because of your conscience. And here the word conscience maybe would be better to think of your self-conscious awareness. Because when you disobey a governing authority, you're self-conscious of the fact that that governing authority was placed there by God. So self-consciously, you know something now. Your conscience has been informed so that your disobedience or rebellion against the governing authority isn't just against them. It's against God's servant. Now, how we put this into practice is really troubling, especially as American citizens where through a rebellion against governing authorities, we've declared ourselves to be the final authority in all things as the people, you know, government by the people, for the people. So it is really tough to know what this looks like in a democratic republic. Um, we're not a democracy, of course. We're a democratic republic. And it's hard to know what this means and what it what that looks like on a practical level. And I think we have seen Christians disagree over this more than any other issue over the last couple years. Matthew, were the early Americans who fought against Britain for American independence, were those Christians who were fighting, if they were Christians, were they sinning in disobeying this passage? I don't know. 
I don't know what all England was doing. Or not doing. Or not doing. Maybe they were being jerks. I mean, yeah, they probably tough. were. I have no idea. Yeah, but but I think the pushback is always, well, whoever was leading Rome was a jerk to Christians. So, yeah, who knows? I, they I, must not have had the manpower back then. <laughs> I don't have a good answer to this at all, and I'm not interested in it because we can't go back and rewrite history. Hey. Right? We can only deal with where we are. I think we I let us off trail with that question, though it's related and interesting, but none of us have studied it out enough to know what what we would even say other than we're glad that we exist and that we enjoy the freedoms that we have, even in a really pagan country like the United States of America that um No I'm kidding. It kind of is. That is run by government officials who don't fear the Lord and who put our taxpayer money in places that we would never approve of if we individually got to choose. So we just recognize everything's messy, even in the what some might think is the best political situation ever. Um, so we have to think about these things. Um, but perhaps we should move on in our discussion. So I have a question. It'll probably be easier for you, easy for you to answer since I haven't looked into it that deeply in chapter 14 kind of says don't eat that if your brother is grieved by it and then later it says the kingdom of heaven isn't about what you what you eat or drink eat or drink whatever you want but then it kind of says but don't do it if you're grieving somebody i don't know what to think about that it's not exactly what it says well that's probably why i don't know what to think about it yeah, the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So I think that kind of sets the attitude of how we serve Christ. It depends so, on. The so are they saying it's not about what we eat or drink, as in don't be bent out of shape if you don't eat that because that guy doesn't like it? So maybe maybe I can back us up and walk through Paul's argument in Romans 14 and 15 in a brief way. No, no. We should jump in the middle. Okay. Let's get right down in the cream filling. Okay. Um, here, here, I think, is what's going on. You have a church of Jews and Gentiles, and some Gentiles are convinced they need to live like a the Jews do, following the Torah, kosher food laws. And there are some Je- Jews who realize they don't have to anymore. So I would say that there are probably Gentiles and Jews on both sides of this issue. Um, so Paul is talking to this church that's divided, new Christians, and uh, there are some who are labeled as the weak in faith. And these individuals say things like, we shouldn't eat meat because... We need to eat kosher meat. We, we can't eat pork. And more than that, like, we don't know where this meat has been. These Roman pagans, who knows if they've defiled it in some way. So it's better for us just to become vegetarians to make sure that we don't violate the Torah. We don't violate our Jewish customs. And it might also be good for us just not to drink any wine because wine's often used in these idol ceremonies. So we don't want to violate that. So let's be like Daniel, who was in exile, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They only ate vegetables and they didn't drink the king's wine. When we're in Rome, let's only eat vegetables and not drink the king's wine. You know, so, so I think that's an issue. And then some of them are saying, and Let's keep the Jewish calendar. Let's follow all of the festivals. Let's make sure we observe some days as holier than others. These are the individuals that Paul says are weak in the faith because they haven't realized that in Christ, all things have become clean. Everything is God's. No day is holier than the other. So they don't actually need to keep doing this, but self-consciously they think God is demanding it of them. And it's hard for them to see anything different. On the other hand, there are the people that Paul says are strong in the faith who are saying it doesn't matter if we're eating non-kosher meat because God's declared all things clean. 
That's what we heard in the Jerusalem Council. Um, it doesn't matter if we drink wine that was used in a ceremony or that that might be associated with pagan living because it's God's. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, right? We don't have to observe certain days as holier than the others because God has redeemed all of time in Christ. Every day is holy to the Lord in the same way. So Paul has seen this church that's divided over this issue, and he's going to rebuke both sides because the, I'll call the more um, restrictive side, is being really judgmental toward the more permissive side. They're saying, you guys are so sinful because you're not following these food laws and you're not observing these days. We're going to look down our nose at you. And then the more permissive people, he's going to rebuke for overly pressuring the restrictive people to just do what the permissive people are doing. And I'm not saying permissive pejoratively. It's fine that they're doing these things. Paul tells us that later. But, but my point is that Paul wants to rebuke the judgy people, and he wants to rebuke the permissive people who are pressuring the judgy people to just chill out. So they were getting pressured. Yep. Yeah, okay. so it wasn't— I didn't pick that yep. up. So that, that kind of becomes clear the further you go. But Paul wants to say, look, you guys don't live for yourselves anymore. You live for the Lord. So the person who's being more restrictive— that person's going to stand before God, and he will stand. The person who's more permissive, you don't need to judge him because God's going to judge him, and he's going to be found blameless because God has permitted these things. So we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. We'll all give an account of ourselves before the Lord. We don't need to give an account to one another. We don't need to judge one another. That's verse 13. So this whole passage, both sides were just overly worried about what the other side was doing. I think that's a good summary of it. Okay. So then this is what Paul's going to say. He's going to say, hey, permissive people, don't overly pressure these more restrictive people to change their ways. And don't, so don't force your ways on them. Um, that's what he means by don't put a stumbling block or a pitfall on them, or don't wound them, don't harm them. Um, but he's going to clarify in verse 14 of chapter 14, now I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. So Paul's saying the, the restrictive people, you don't need to stay restrictive. And in fact, I'm declaring what the truth is, so that way you can be on a trajectory towards informing your conscience and over time, you may adopt a different way of life, but you don't have to. But God would permit that for you. He's, he's bought that for you in Jesus. Now, to the more permissive person, God has bought freedom in Jesus. So don't use that to cause your brother or sister to sin against their conscience. So when, when you have them over for dinner and you offer them meat and wine, and they tell you, oh, actually— I'm a vegetarian because I don't want to violate kosher food laws. Say, okay, that's great. Um, you don't need to take the meat. We have these vegetables for you as well. So it's so that's what he's saying is you you need to be unified and worship God together, praise God with one another, share life together without pressuring one another to adopt the opposite person's behavior. Now, sometimes there's people misunderstand what Paul's saying as don't ever let anyone know that you do something they disapprove of. That's not what Paul is saying because he very explicitly gave his way of operating. What he's saying is don't force other people to do what you're doing. Don't put peer pressure on them to become more permissive and don't judge someone else for being more restrictive. Now, I think that if we're going to apply this text we have to use a genuinely comparable situation. In almost no conscience issue that we deal with in our churches qualifies as a genuinely comparable situation. I think the closest would be someone who's saying, I don't want to drink wine or eat meat because I, I think God doesn't want us to do this. So that might be like a Jewish convert who came to our church. Um, I think close might be a Catholic convert who says, we need to be following the church calendar rigidly. Well, that person's weak in their faith, and we need to tell them, hey, God doesn't demand that of you, but you can keep 
following the, the church calendar or the Jewish calendar. So I think those are the kind of issues, issues that are religiously motivated. Um, sometimes people try to connect drinking alcohol to this. And I would say if, if someone's reason for not drinking alcohol is because they're trying to follow kosher food laws, that, that fits. But if their reason for not drinking alcohol is, well, I don't want to ever sin by becoming drunk, that's a wisdom prudence issue. And it somewhat applies, but not directly. Does that make sense? So, so I want to say there are different categories of conscience, and some situations are closer to this situation, and others are further removed from it. Okay, that makes sense because this is talking about food and drink strictly in a uh, in religious ways, yep. not yeah, you know, whatever sin, not sin, culture, this, that, or the other. Yeah, apart from religion, it's specifically for religious reasons. Exactly. So I'd say you know someone who's a vegetarian at our church, they they need to realize their form of vegetarianism is different than this form of vegetarianism. That one's religiously motivated. Yours might be preference or health or, you know, the value of our culture right now on a particular thing. It's not the same. So you shouldn't categorize yourself in the, in the same way that Paul is categorizing these people. So I'd say that about the vegetarian and meat issue, I'd say that about the alcohol versus not alcohol issue. I'd say that about the church calendar versus no church calendar issue. You you have to categorize your issue correctly. And for most of them, I want to say it's that we deal with, it's either an issue of just preference and taste, or it's an issue of wisdom and prudence. And we respond to those in different ways. For none of them, do I think that you should hide your practice from someone else, nor should you try to get them to conform to your practice, nor should you judge them for not doing what you do. So some of the principles will work themselves out, but being too quick to categorize yourself as strong in the faith or weak in the faith, I, I think we should avoid that. Live and let live. Um, <laughs> I So let me use the alcohol as a is an example. I don't want to say to people in our church, if you drink alcohol or if you don't, live and let live. What I want to say is this is a wisdom and prudence issue. We have a church covenant that prohibits and the Bible that says getting drunk is bad. So people who drink alcohol in our church shouldn't hide that from the people they've covenanted with and they only drink in private, hidden away, because how can we help keep that per- those people accountable? Well, we can't when the thing is now hidden. So on these issues, I want to say we've, we've got to think about it a little bit different, and we need to think about it as a community of faith, not us living and let living, just doing whatever the heck we want. Can we I'll have stop. beer at the Wednesday night? I would say Paul gives us an instruction here to do what will promote peace and build up one another. So in some, I feel more peaceful. <laughs> so in some churches... Almost everyone is going to drink alcohol there, and they've developed a culture where if alcohol is served, the people who don't drink it feel zero pressure to. So what promoting peace in that environment, that might include the the church having a a liquor license and, and serving alcohol at their event. For other churches, that is not going to promote peace, and so it should be avoided. I think there are any number of practices, and we always want to ask, what is going to promote peace here? And that's the guideline, not what's going to keep some one person from being mad, you know, on, on either way, you know? So um, we could, if we have no meat at a meal um, because there's one vegetarian at our church, I don't think that's the right option. I think the right thing to say is what would promote peace? cultivating an environment where the vegetarian isn't made fun of or pressured to eat meat and serving meat and vegetables at a meal. I think that will promote peace in in a church. So everything, I think, is on a case-by-case basis. Like a case of beer and a case of Pepsi. Everybody's happy. I like what you did there. (laughs) But, But what I'm trying to say is that different churches will deal with these issues in different ways. 
in in the fundamental driving principle is what will promote peace, not what will enforce my opinion on someone else. Paul is trying to say, do the opposite of that. Don't force your opinion on other people. Instead, promote peace. And, and sometimes that will look like you saying, oh, we're doing the opposite of what I would want here, but it's okay because of the end product. And, and that happens sometimes for the week where they have to say, oh, bummer, we're, our, our church is not observing all of the days on the Jewish calendar because that's not going to promote peace. But also, I'm not being judged for being a vegetarian. And that is promoting peace. You see what I mean? Like, or, or the opposites could be the case too. Hey, we are going to celebrate all the days on the Jewish calendar. And that's what will be the most peace-promoting decision for our church. In our church, celebrating every, every day on the Jewish calendar would not promote peace in our assembly. It would be nonsensical. Why? Same thing with the liturgical calendar. Would it be bad to celebrate any of those events? No. But what's going to be the most peace-promoting thing? But I would, say, I would say that we have not done enough teaching to give good guidance to either side on, the, on this matter. TBD. In two weeks. Yeah. Two and three weeks from now. We'll talk about this exact issue. Of Plenty of time until the next... Oh, in Bible class? The next Wednesday. Yeah. Night, so, so this coming Sunday, I'm going to walk us through doctrinal triage and the issue of how to interpret the term day in Genesis 1 and then give some guidelines for disagreement. The next week, I'm going to explain Romans 13 and four, or 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 and give a four-level categorization of conscience issues. And then the following week, we'll put that into practice, looking at a few hot topic issues. As we wrap up our consideration of the book of Romans, I just want to draw attention to one of my favorite verses in the Bible in Romans 16, 20, where Paul writes that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What I was trying to draw attention to is that Paul wants these Christians to do what promotes peace. And he's, I think, insinuating here that the divisiveness over these conscience issues, these other issues, that's a satanic work in the church. So both sides ought to be working to crush the satanic lack of peace, the division that's present in the church. He closes the letter with these encouraging words. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever. Amen. This has been the Resurrection Church Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like any other information about the church, you can find that at resurrectionmn.org. In Job 4, 15 and 16, quickly talking about a spirit, does that mean that ghosts, so it's, ghosts it's kind exist? Of big picture. Aaron, do you believe in ghosts? You know what? I do. But more importantly, I think they need to believe in themselves. Mm. <laughs>